Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we're joined by Dr. Louise Maynard Elton. Welcome to the show, Louise. Thank you. I wasn't sure whether you were going to throw the doctor in there because it always makes me feel super uncomfortable when people use that title. Oh, no, 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 no. We do do that. And we make sure that all of our friends have their profile, LinkedIn and everything updated with doctor because it is damn important. Um, and uh, you earned it. So why not? Right. So yes. let's start with that. Actually, I love that. Um, tell us a little bit about how you went from PhD in materials chemistry to digital identity. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of hard. My background was chemical engineering, and I thought that was far, but I did mm -hmm. not go all the way to a PhD and ended up where we are right now. So tell us a little bit about your amazing journey. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love to say that there was, you know, all of this planning and it was all intentional. It 100% was not but I think there are some general themes that carry through all the way back into when I was in um in academia so I um I wanted to be a scientist from when I was a little kid um and the most sciencey of the sciences is chemistry uh because you know you get to wear your white coat and like mix stuff and blow stuff up and that's basically it was my motivation <laughs> for going into chemistry and um, ultimately I wanted to be a lecturer I wanted to be a chemistry professor and, and to do that you had to have a PhD uh, so I you know went all the way down that route I was I was working in um, carbon capture so you know climate change effectively but way before climate change was the big and important topic that it is today I mean it was, it was important back then but people weren't quite as aware of what was going on um, so yes, designing designing new um, uh, membranes to separate out carbon dioxide from a mixed gas stream was my previous role. Um, and I suppose a little while into the academic journey, I realized that it probably wasn't the right environment for me uh, and the kind of person that I am. I'm very much more focused on like applications of theory rather than the theory itself. And it felt that, you know, in academia, people were uh, very focused on the theory for the theory's sake. And I was like, oh, well, what can we do with this? How can we change things with this? How can we improve things with, with this theories that we're developing? Um, and that wasn't really the done thing uh, at the time. So I thought perhaps this isn't the best place for my skills. Um, and so I moved away from uh, materials chemistry. Uh, and I think the, the thing that I spent most of my time doing during my PhD was data and data analysis. So I thought, well, that's got to be pretty transferable outside of the world of academia uh, and that's been sort of the continuous thread through all of the jobs that I've done all of the industries that I've worked in is that effectively I've been analyzing data and using the analysis and the sort of the outputs of that to you know start a new experiment and start a new hypothesis and find evidence for that and that's that's how I say that basically I've just been doing chemistry my whole life, but just not really applied to a chemical setting. So yeah, the data has been the continuous thing. And that's how I've sort of worked through various jobs and ended up in the digital identity space. You know, I need to get my daughter to talk to you. She's eight years <laughs> old. Her favorite thing to do is to go to the kitchen, look for whatever it is that she can find, mix them up and say, here you go, yep. mommy, go try it. I'm like, what on earth are you giving me? And she said, I would want to be in chemistry. I want to study things. Her favorite book is the book of elements, periodic table. Oh my God. I have to show you something. 
I have to show you something right now. I have a miniature periodic table on my desk with all of the, like little samples of all of the different elements. <laughs> okay, uh, I know exactly <laughs> what to get her for the holidays. Like literally for Christmas, I had to go find her periodic table books and then she would just read through them and she would tell me things. I'm like, okay, but I have no idea what these are. Okay, <laughs> what is an atomic number, mommy? What are all these things? Where did they find them? I'm like, I don't know. But that is so cool though. You need to tell that story more often, Louis, just, you know. Okay, not that digital identity is not interesting, <laughs> but yes, we should talk, we should talk. Yeah. So let's go from, from science and climate science and periodic tables to something that has periodically been on our mind this past year. Um, it's been a crazy year. A lot has happened. A lot has changed. A lot has been lost and uh, a little bit less has been gained. Um, I didn't know I was going to start this with a poem, but anyway, um, so let's start, <laughs> let's start with that uh, a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, this past year and the things that were getting you most excited around identity. Um, and we're also hearing that you're starting a new adventure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So I, um, well, up until last Friday, I suppose, was working in the data innovation team at Experian. So that was all around like leveraging alternative data for various different use cases, primarily around financial inclusion and how, you know, all of the data that is exists in the world is largely ignored by a lot of the sort of traditional financial institutions and the way that they understand risk. Um, so I've been doing that for nearly three years and it's been a fanta fantastic journey. I've learned lots, got to you know work with in lots of different countries and that's been great. But as of next week um, on Monday, I will be um, going over to GBG. So GB Group, they're uh, very much focused on uh, identity and fraud uh, and all of the data that supports those use cases um, and helping them to build out their data insights team. So it's kind of that, that trepidation that you have right before you start a new job. You don't really know what's going to be involved. It's all super exciting. But all of that against the backdrop of I'm still going to be sitting in this room <laughs> looking at this laptop, but just looking at a different set of faces will be looking back at me. So I'm very excited to, to do that and to move more towards the um, identity side of the work that I've been doing, because that is a sort of the foundational uh, element at GB. Um, but outside of the new role, the, there's quite a lot of exciting things going on with uh, women in identity. So a, a nonprofit that I sit on the exec of and have done for the past year or so, I lead their um, research efforts. And actually this year we are launching our very first research project, which is all about um, diversity and inclusion within the digital identity space and we're trying to develop a code of conduct actually so that you know people can understand how um, at the different points of the design life cycle of these new products and projects that we can be um, conscious of including diverse voices within the design within the testing within like the release of these products so that they are fit for the communities that they're actually designed to serve because I think so often we find that, you know, with technology has biases baked in and they are the biases of the people that are building the, the technology. Not always malicious, but can have harmful effects on the people that, you know, this software is, is going to be used by. So the, the point of the code of conduct is to 
is to highlight the points at which these biases can become baked into the software and try and help people guard against that. Because there's been so much research done about like, you know, we all know diversity is better, diverse teams are better, we want to be more inclusive and more equitable. But, you know, research papers only take you so far. So we wanted to do something that was practical, that people can, you know, have a, have a checklist of steps that they can follow so that they can be made aware of the potential biases that might be being included in these products and try and, and guard against that. So here is a list of things that I can do or not do to make sure that I am putting out the best product possible. So very excited for all of that work to, to kick off it later on this year. seeing a, a pattern of how you went from academia to wanting to do something practical and how you're realizing that our society has so much bias baked in that you want to do something practical about it. Mm -hmm. It is very, very, very exciting and, and thankful to, to you and, and, um, and for, you know, a bunch of others working towards that. Um, and, and you're right. We've talked about a lot, you know, I, I think, as a society, it's not so much so that we lack awareness that there is a challenge with inequality and bias, but more so, how do we go about fixing it? Um, and you mentioned it recently that we need some hope. We need some good news. Um, will there be any hope? Will change eventually come? Because I feel like looking back towards, I don't know, the last 11 months, 12 months, what have you, whatever progress that we thought we had made, we just got set back even furthermore. But it will eventually get better, right? Will it? I mean, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> my answer to that question kind of changes depending on like what day you catch me on or how much doom scrolling I've been doing on Twitter, basically. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we've discussed this any number of times. The news is, the news is bleak um, and there isn't probably a day that goes by when I don't read something about, like, you know, inequality and or bias, you know, manifesting in different ways and, and leading to really harmful consequences for largely underrepresented groups. Um, but I suppose my, my counter to that is that, you know, we've actually been talking about these topics openly, honestly, and continuously. And that is a big step forward because, you know, we weren't always talking about these things or we weren't always talking about these things in such a public way. Or it was a case that, you know, we talk about it once and then, you know, it would be old news and we'd move on. But we aren't doing that this time. We are continuously coming back to these topics. And I think, it's all of these individual moments that are coming together that has, you know, formed the kind of the movement that we're living through at the minute. And I think it's that kind of movement that is going to drive the actual change. So, yeah, it, it does feel <laughs> it does feel sometimes a little bit endless. That doesn't always feel like there's light at the end of this tunnel. But the conversations are are happening and they're being had and people are becoming more aware of, you know, their own ignorance and they're, and they're gaining a, an understanding of the depth of the inequality and bias that exists in our society. And like, and that awareness, I genuinely believe is going to be galvanized into action, not necessarily by all, but I think by people who have the power to make some change. Like if you think about when we met, Theo, we were talking on, on the Cybos panel and we were talking about, um, you know, in, inequality. We were talking to the, you know, the world's biggest financial institutions about like food insecurity. When would that really have ever happened before? 
and I spoke on the uh, Money 2020s virtual conference last year, and I was talking about racial inequality, which is 100% not a topic that really would ever have been discussed at one of like, you know, the world's biggest fintech <laughs> conferences on the main stage. Like that just wouldn't have happened. So I, whilst it is doom and gloom, sure, I mean, we're having the conversations, the conversations aren't going away. And I do believe that we are going to turn just these conversations into actions. So that's the hope. It's a little far away, but it is there. It's interesting when you when we talk about hope and we, we get back to um, sort of what we're focused on here in fintech and financial services. Um, when I was at Santander, we invested in companies like Secure, and there was another company that we invested in that was trying to identify people within crypto trades uh, in order to analyze who was doing what. Um, that's what financial services and, and banks think about when it comes to identity is more customers, which is kind of boring to me. <clears throat> so when we look at fintech innovation, uh, we look toward the East and to China and into India uh, for inspiration. So this is where identity, I think, you know, really is important when we're talking about the billions of people that um, aren't necessarily identified. So what what can we learn from from other areas um, for us sitting in the UK and in the US? And what does the future of digital identity really look like then? What's important? I think it's really interesting with the with the digital identity argument. And it's you know it's it's totally true that you say that the way that banks or financial institutions view this is just as more customers. But I think you know COVID has forced the shift, the digital shift to most people are, are, you know, shifting online, transacting online. Um, and that may well just be for commerce, but increasingly it's it's for access to services um, that have nothing to do with, with trading or with commerce or anything like that. So it's, bec it's becoming a foundational um, capability that we all need to get access to our doctors, to get access to booking appointments and things. So not just me on Amazon, which unfortunately has increased over the past year, but it's also, you know, how am I going to get access to book my uh, COVID vaccine when that comes about? It will be done, you know, online and digitally I will have to prove I am who I say I am in order to get access to that vaccine. And I suppose when we think about sort of, you know, Western markets like the UK, the US, and, and we compare them certainly from a digital identity standpoint to Eastern markets, I think the it's quite representative of the different cultures, the way the, the approach that's been taken to digital identity. So if you look at the UK as my primary example, you know, centralization just has not worked here, not at all. Uh, and I think that is reflective of of a culture of, of perhaps mistrust of of the you know central organizations governments to do what is right and what is best for the uh, the people of those countries and if i use my often used example of singapore in in southeast asia you know they that that culture of trusting believing going along with the fact that you know the government is doing what is right, what is best, and we will follow that, I think has very much driven the digital identity approaches in uh, East versus West, I suppose. And in the UK, and I think the US is also true, we've had to go down that decentralized route. And that decentralized route means that there's been tons of fragmentation in the market, lots of different solutions being built to lots of different standards and none of them really working together at all. And no one clear view as to how this problem should be solved. And that unfortunately is a feature of the decentralized model that we have chosen to go down that I think culturally we can't avoid. So in terms of what we can learn from um, Eastern markets, I think 
it's that that collaboration between like centralized government and private organizations is has to be there has to be key if we want to come up with any kind of standard in the way that we solve this digital identity problem and i think the lack of that standard has led to the you know this big gap which big tech often comes into fill and rightly or wrongly the the power has now shifted from perhaps centralizing government to these big tech players who are defining a lot of the environment within markets like the UK and the US. So I think what we need to learn and learn relatively quickly is how we can make private organizations, commercial organizations work with our governments to drive that kind of public private collaboration that I think is desperately needed for something like digital identity. Because yes, it is commercial, Absolutely. And that there, there's no escaping that. But I think it goes further than that. It goes to the point of being a foundational capability that all citizens need to have, regardless of, you know, whether they're Apple or Android or their smartphone or not smartphone. It's it's becoming so fundamental to people that we need to figure out how those um, private sector organizations and public sector organizations work better together. And in terms of a future, what does a future look like? I believe that um, the consumer is going to be back at the center of the whole ecosystem. I think up until this point, the, the consumer has kind of been a bystander, <laughs> an unknowing bystander in a lot of instances. But I think the, certainly the way that regulation is moving, certainly the way that even some tech organizations are actually trying to differentiate themselves on the fact that, you know, they are putting the consumer at the heart of things that they are being, you know, focusing on privacy by design. I think that model, that ecosystem where the consumer is at the heart of everything and decides, you know, where the data goes, who the data goes to, how long it is shared for, um, what what people can see, I think that is going to be the future. And the, the way I use my my Apple wallet on my phone, I, I fully expect in, you know, five to 10 years time, I'm going to be using my data wallet in the same way. And then I need to prove my age, then I can just share that, you know, that particular thing from my phone or when I need to prove I've had my vaccine I can do that I think we are definitely moving towards a world where our data wallets are going to be used in the exact same way as our as our Apple wallets and Android wallets etc I like your analogy of data wallet because if you think about how what we do every single day our identity what we do what we share is in the heart of everything from yeah. you know our examples what we talked about ordering from amazon what we order when we order all of those to making a purchase um yesterday i was talking to someone that i prefer vendors and sites that take apple pay because it's so much easier but mm -hmm. all of that if you think about it it and it touches what you were just talking about big tech and their role in our society. And we have seen that play out in places like India. We have seen it play out recently in Australia and in how they are trying to quote unquote negotiate with the government and what they what they will pay and what they won't pay. Um, I, I think we've seen it evolved a lot in terms of who owns the data, who has ownership, who has the right to that data, what they can do with it. And we are trying to wrestle back the, the control, if you will, like you, what you were saying. Um, we have been an unconscious bystander or the product, <laughs> which mm. people are profiting off of. <laughs> um, would you think we will see more regulation um, in the space to try to bring that back in control when you're talking about private and public sector um, working closer together? I mean, 
you know, at, at some point in time, it almost feels like the big tech is so powerful, they're running our lives. So what 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 are we gonna do? I think I think before we can figure out um the control element of this, I think there needs to be um a greater level of understanding or education for people around, you know, what data is even being produced about them, what is being done with that data, how it's being used, what decisions are being made off of the back of this data before we can get to the aspect of of control because I think so many people still don't really understand the depth of data that they are that is out there about them and what that data is being used for so I think we're starting to get there we're starting to have a bit more understanding but I think the depth of you know the decisions that get made off of the back of this data people don't have that understanding yet so to offer them control in that same situation where they don't really have the knowledge it's kind of a pointless thing to do because they don't know what it is they're saying yes or no or trying to control. So I think we need to have that level of understanding first and then we can tackle the element of control. But do I think we will ever get it back fully? Um, we certainly can't retrofit back to <laughs> all of the data that is already out there that we have produced and that people have used to make all kinds of decisions which we couldn't even fathom. We can't. But going forwards, I do believe there will be greater control and I think some of that will come from regulation in the same way that the financial services organizations are so heavily regulated and that defines a lot of what they can and cannot do I don't see how big tech can continue the way that it has done basically a bit of a free-for-all without any kind of regulation at all and we've seen this you know we've seen the start of this with GDPR and CCPA over in the in the US and we've seen more and more regulations that are following that same style coming up in different regions. So I think regulation will get tougher, definitely. Um, and I think that, you know, we're going to need to actually design for different levels of control for people. So convenience is key. And again, we'll use the Amazon example of, you know, there's not a day that goes by when I'm not using my Amazon Prime subscription and all sorts of things coming to my door. Um, and I think people are often willing to trade quite a lot for convenience. And that may be because they don't necessarily uh, feel that they can shift the value exchange between themselves and any other entity. But I think a lot of people will trade quite a lot for convenience. So I think in designing solutions where we are giving the consumer control, we need to design for a number of different ways that the consumer can take back control. Because I think ultimately, you know, it's gonna it's gonna fit with a, a normal distribution. The majority of people are going to be squarely in the middle and want too much control they don't want to have too much of an active role in in figuring out like you know what their data is being exchanged for but they want the option to see it they want some level of transparency even if they don't necessarily want some control over it but i think we're gonna have to design for you know the people who probably like myself would would actively want to control where the data goes and who sees it and how long it gets shared for and there will also be the people who want absolutely nothing to do with it and want to just continue living their lives the way that they are so i think it, regardless of what that future looks like, we need to design for the numbers of ways in which people can have control and understand whether or not consumers want transparency more than they want control. I think that's the big question. It's an interesting trade-off. I mean, when you when you think about um, sort of the 
beginnings of GDPR, it really came about because they're trying to get a way to transfer financial data and payment information. And so with PSD1 back in 2007, um, you know, we, we've come a long way. And I'm I'm glad that, you know, I'm in California where the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Protection Act, is like GDPR. And it's the only thing that we have in the U.S. that's even close. Um, so let's hope that we continue to see some of that kind of going and controlling, you know, our ability to access and our ability to understand what data is collected and all the rest. It's so important. Um, so let's switch gears to sort of wrap this a little bit and get into some of the things that you were doing up until about a, a week ago, which I hope continues. Um, there's a billion people today that lack any form of digital ID. And when you think, you know, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet and the seventh of us don't even have any form of identification. I think back to um, uh, a conversation that I had with my friend Daniel Gusev, who is from Moscow, and he has a complete digital ID, and he showed me all the things that he could access just from his phone. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, we, we probably won't have that kind of stuff for like two decades in the U.S., um, everything around identity seems to be, you know, not happening very fast and we need to do so much more. In the past year, you know, we've had like this also sort of decoupling of the reality of, of the economics around identity because we've had the thousand richest people on the planet recouple their losses in just those nine months. Um, what's going to, to help us change in the next decade to help the world's poor recover from the economic impacts of the pandemic? And how does digital identity and things that you've learned about uh, inequality and, and exclusion, how does that sort of wrap together in the way that you think about the future? What's going to happen around inequality? Yeah, it's a, the, the, the stats around, sort of, you know, 1 billion, that's over what 13% of the global population. And, and the fact that, you know, the, the, the wealthiest 0.01% of people have, you know, more than recouped their losses in a very short period of time. And the rest of us are going to be paying catch up for a very long time to come. And it's just so reflective of the fact that opportunity is just so unevenly distributed in the world. And, you know, those of us, and I'd include, you know, all of us in, in, in this category is like, the things that we need to do is with the privilege that we have being in the in industries that we sit in and the, you know, positions that we sit in need to be working towards actively trying to redistribute that opportunity, because ultimately that is where these, this yawning gap between the top 1% and possibly the other 99% of the world has come about because of that uneven distribution of opportunity. So wherever we can, we need to be trying to actively every day in small ways and large redistribute that opportunity so that it is there is greater access for everybody to have. But I think picking up specifically on the digital identity front, so often I think a lot of us fall into the trap of thinking technology is the solution for this. Uh, more tech will help. And invariably technology will help. Technology is, is the greatest enabler of our time and it will allow us to realize the value that digital identity opportunities present. So I think, you know, for those of us who do have access to that technology, then we, we will get there. COVID-19 has certainly put some trends into motion at such a quicker rate that we will get there far faster than we ever would have thought this time last year because we have to because this is now becoming fat like a condition of going about our daily lives is, is having access to this sort of digital identity technology and therefore I think that will speed things up at a rate that which we could never have 
predicted. But I suppose if I if I want to think about that one billion, those one billion people that ha don't have access to technology, technology is not going to be any part of the solution for them. And I think we so often just focus on the yeah, this we can do this, we can build this app that does X, and we can exchange data in this super secure way that does Y. But we're completely ignoring that one billion people for whom technology is is a vague, vague, vague consideration. So. I think when we're thinking about digital identity, and I know it has digital in the name, so it, it does very much speak to a technology-based solution. But for so many people, the technology is just, is just the furthest thing from consideration. So we need to be thinking about what the alternative solutions are that mean we can arrive at equal outcomes for those who are on one side of the technology divide versus those who aren't, because that's ultimately what we want to get to. And we're, we're seeing bits of this. So. Um, just last week in the UK, the post office announced uh, a partnership with Yoti, the digital identity company. Um, so allowing uh, people in the UK to, you know, create a digital identity and then use it to, you know, collect parcels, interact with the government, etc. But they, importantly, what they've also mentioned is that they want to create alternatives for the people that don't have smartphones or the people that don't have passports or driver's license. So they're introducing a, a vouching system whereby uh, a, a recognized professional can vouch for you being who you say you are if, in case you don't have access to a passport, which I think 20% of the UK don't, or a smartphone, which again is another massive percentage. So it's it's things like that that you know make me quite hopeful because not only are we thinking about the tech solutions that we need and that will one that will serve a lot of us, but we're also starting to think about the alternative solutions for people who don't have access to the tech. And I think that's just one small example, but that is you know, it's quite significant here. And I, I want to believe that, you know, those same alternatives that will arrive at equal outcomes for everybody will be part of the thinking as we try and leverage the opportunity that digital identity presents. I, I, I love that, Louise, and, and it's perfect ending because it gives us hope, right? And it brings us back to, you know, despite everything that has happened, despite things that, days that we feel like, you know, we were living on a Groundhog Day, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There are people like yourselves actively working towards solving that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Louise. Dr. Louise, maybe maybe <laughs> add. Um, and thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. And we'll talk to you next week.